None of this would have happened if my parents had just let me have a goddamn emo phase in peace. All I wanted was a life-size poster of Marilyn Manson and a nose ring. <laughs> Is that so much to ask? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a lot. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a tower. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. I'm Jessica. And I'm an extremely sunburnt rendition of Janelle. It hurts to be alive. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's usually the way it is, but it doesn't usually hurt to sit. <laughs> I went to Warp Tour this past weekend, like the 14-year-old emo kid that I am inside. Obviously. My parents, like, prevented me from having a full-fledged emo phase when I was in middle school. They put some. They put some rails on that. There was yeah. There was some. There was some training wheels on that one. Um, some some safety bumpers on that. So like, I did have strange colored hair, and I did wear a lot of band T-shirts. But like, snake bites were just straight out. That was that was out not on the, the table. That was not an appropriate fashion choice for fourteen-year-old Janelle. Yeah, filling my my lip with rings when I had braces was just not on the table for me. <laughs> Can you imagine you would have clicked every time you tried to talk? Oh, my first kiss would have ended in the emergency room, so, you know. I'm pretty sure you would legally qualify as a bear trap out of season. <laughs> I have to register myself, get a permit. But <laughs> because, like, I was prevented from having a full-fledged emo phase and, like, getting it all out of my system in two to three years, I've just been having, like, a slow burn emo phase that has continued for now 12 continuous years. Oh, yeah. It's like one of those old-fashioned fevers where every time you take a chill, it comes back. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I decided that it would be a super good idea to be uh, a good little edgelord and go to Warp Tour, which is just direct sunlight, by the way. Warp Tour is just in a parking mm. lot. In New Jersey, at least the stop that we went to, the Homedale stop. There's a bunch of, like, emo vampires just all in a field. Oh yeah, it's literally in a parking lot. <laughs> so you're getting baked from the top and the bottom. Oh yeah, it's it's literally like... Like a baked potato buried in the embers of a campfire. Nine continuous hours of direct sunlight. And I was like, I'm gonna wear my most shredded t-shirt to give myself <laughs> proper emo cred to show that I... That I am still with it, kids. I'm still with it. I still got this. And then I didn't realize that I needed to put sunscreen on my back. So basically, it looks <laughs> like I have been whipped. <laughs> it looks like you're trying to replicate the pageant of the Christ in your four-story walk-up. <laughs> it kind of does, because like my I'm so sunburnt that it's actually swollen. Like, <laughs> it's now just- I just have these vertical welts across my back. <laughs> kinky shit. Yeah, and they're pretty high up, so I don't own a whole lot of t-shirts with full coverage, so I'm just walking around New York City in low-back shirts, looking like I had quite the night. <laughs> People are averting children's eyes, um, I'm getting knowing glances from my friends, I just, I don't need this, I can't sleep. You can cook on my back. It just this is this is an odd start to superpowers. I mean, bit by a radioactive ball of flaming fusion, thousands of miles away. It's unique. I'll give you that. Unorthodox. It, my superpower is going to be the ability to shed my entire skin like a fucking <laughs> snake when I start goddamn molting in three days. 
Oh, it was kind of worth it to see Bowling for Soup. True. And 303. Mm, I feel you. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I have no idea what any of those words meant. <laughs> they, they made sense individually, but together, no. Every band that I list is just going to be a band consisting of 40-year-olds who sing about high school. I live for it. Uh, speaking of elderly drama queens, Ooh. today's topic... Uh, Louis XIV, so-called because he was the latest Louis in a long line of Louis, ruled over France at a time when it was the, at the height of its military power and cultural influence. He built Versailles, controlled a vast kingdom and extended empire, and came as close as any king to a rule that was truly absolute. For 72 years, the world revolved around the Sun King. But today's episode isn't really about him. But rather his little brother, Philippe, the inevitable underdog in a lifelong royal sibling rivalry. <laughs> Which is the best kind of sibling rivalry. Absolutely. With international stakes on the line. My sibling rivalry was just me occasionally trying to push my brother out of a moving car. But... <laughs> that's, that's what sibling rivalry is to me. Actually, my sibling rivalry mostly focused on the fact that there was three of us, but my younger sister and older brother could not stand one another, so they just fought over my companionship. You were just I the was buffer. The kingmaker when I was five. You were the DMZ <laughs> of your family. Yeah, I was. I was a VIP man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I smashed my youngest brother's first teeth out. That was his first lost tooth. Was when Aww. I bashed it out of his face with a flashlight. So you know. That's adorable. Lots of love. Siblings. That's great. Yeah. As a note, the eldest brother of the French king was habitually known by the title of Monsieur, unless there was a need to distinguish the still living eldest brother of a previous king and, the, and that of the current king, uh, in which case the older Monsieur would be known as the Grand Monsieur and the younger would be, st would be the Petit Monsieur. So Philippe d'Orléans, until the death of his uncle, was known as Le Petit Monsieur and was afterwards simply known as Monsieur. Isn't that just mean the little mister? Because that's kind of adorable. See, <laughs> it's funnily enough, in modern French, that's what it would mean, but Monsieur as a title actually comes from uh, this usage. Monsieur literally means my lord. Oh. Uh, just like Madame means my lady. Or Notre Dame, like the cathedral, means our lady. Oh. Yeah, so, well, that makes uh, sense. Notre Dame, Notre Dame Cathedral... Our Lady Cathedral. So it was genuinely hard to get a lot of good sources on Philippe, but I've done my best. You are very lucky that I know French because the primary biography available in English is a 1989 work by Nancy Barker, brother to the Sun King, which heavily uses at best outdated theories on human psychology to baselessly speculate about the internal motivations of the various historical personages in a way that is genuinely odd coming from an academic source. Uh, the only other long-form Anglophone biography I was able to find was one by Hugh Stokes, first published in 1913, that calls Monsieur uh, a contemptible character in the first page of the preface and seems to be trying to blame him personally for the fact that his great-great-grandson participated in the French Revolution. Many of Philippe's contemporaries considered him polite, affable, and mild-mannered, not to mention kind-hearted, so how exactly did he come to be so disliked by his own historians? I mean, making baseless psychological accusations about historical figures is the only reason I went into psychology. <laughs> it's your passion. Your Oscar Wilde was a vampire, and Virginia Woolf had a bear fetish. Just 
<laughs> she wanted to fuck bears. Prove me wrong. <laughs> she wanted to fuck a whole lighthouse. Just <laughs> squat down over it. Oh no. <laughs> nope, I went I'm too far. Ima- I went too far. <laughs> I'm just imagining sort of like a cartoon with like her eyes glowing like womp and then it like showing through her ears as if anyway. This is not a road we should have gone down. <laughs> it's a fascinating mental image. Yikes. <laughs> Philippe was born in sixteen forty, two years after his older brother, the Dauphin, which is a French word which translates both as crown prince and dolphin, strangely enough. Uh, <laughs> and Louis were o- the only children of Louis XIII and Anne of Austria, who wasn't from Austria, she was from Spain. God damn she it. She was, however, a Habsburg, which is where the name comes from. Just, she sits on a throne of lies that is not <laughs> nice. located in Austria. Yeah, she's not from Austria, her son's not a dolphin, I don't know what to think. <laughs> God damn it, this is why you keep losing wars. <laughs> They were married for political reasons by their respective parents and had basically no say in the matter in a literal wife wife swap. Anne of Austria was traded for Elizabeth of France, Louis XIII's sister, who then married Anne's brother, who later became Philip IV of Spain. You may remember Philip IV if you've listened to our Charles II episode. And what an episode that is. And what an episode. My goodness. (laughs) Deeply unwell. They probably should have wife swapped a little harder. Yeah, they should have. They should have shopped around a little longer. That's, see, that's that's the real reason why you need like these online sources. You just, you just, you need like a broader pool of women to pick from other than your cousins. The Habsburgs would probably still exist if Tinder had been a thing. Tinder and like some looser norms around sharing family property. Holy crap! <laughs> Louis the Thirteenth was considered by some historical consensus to have been homosexual. He wasn't interested in his wife, refused to sleep with her for basically the first four years of their marriage, and did so only out of duty and to avoid being harangued about it. He had no known or suspected mistresses and had a series of passionate attachments to male favorites. Further, Louis XIII suspected Anne, not entirely unjustly, of treasonous and disloyal instincts. She obviously still felt a degree of affiliation with the Spanish Habsburgs, France's rivals, and dabbled in circles known for antipathy towards her husband, the king. How dare you feel an affinity for your birth country and also slightly (laughs) resent a man you were forced to marry against your will. Wench. Trollop. Not immediately switching complete allegiances after being transplanted to another country you've never been to before when you were a teenager? My goodness. It's just so weird. They traded her off like a Pokemon and she's not immediately into it. That's just, I don't get it. Women. (laughs) Ingrates. Probably one of the most notable leaders among these circles of rebellious sentiment was none other than Gaston, who is not the Gaston. I was going to say. The... He is the Duke of Orléans <laughs> and Louis XIII's younger brother. Oh. <laughs> and this younger brother collaborated with several conspiracies among the nobility against the authority and power of the king and continued to do so even after his brother died at the age of 41, of being the king, I assume, <laughs> being, being someone in the 17th century. I said, that's that's usually lethal. Yeah, that's generally very lethal. I mean, death comes for us all, but it comes faster when you live in the 17th century. It, it comes faster no matter what, what level of society you are at in the 17th century. 
and his four-year-old nephew became king with Anne of Austria's regent. Gaston was exiled from his participation in the Fronde, a series of civil wars that began as an attempt by the nobility to restrict the power of the monarchy and dominated the domestic politics of France during the formative years of Louis XIV and led to his later paranoia of coups and conspiracies. I mean, France did eventually chop off a bunch of heads, but he kind of predates that, so... Yeah, yeah, by, uh, by quite some time. <laughs> he just had um, really good instincts for the direction his country was headed. After, like, Louis XIV was, like, pretty much the pinnacle of French society, it goes downhill from here. Like, this is, this is, like, the high point of the Ancien Régime, which is the, uh, the Ancien Régime referring to pre-revolutionary France. Like... It doesn't really get good until you get post-revolution again. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of bread lines between then and mm. then. Like, I mean, like, I, I think we can all agree that, like, the rise of democracy and, like, the downfall of, of monarchies and unrepresentative forms of government was a good thing. But it was a hard road between then and now. <laughs> there was some chaos. It was a bit chaotic, I will tell you. <laughs> This is like crashing your old car in order to get a new one. It was not the most peaceful way of accomplishing the goal. And no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure, the old one was a pinto, but, like, that was quite an explosion. Yikes. <laughs> the story of young Monsieur was one of parental favoritism that was typical of the day and age. Male preference primogenitor, where the eldest legitimate male heir inherits the entirety of the estate, was culturally and legally enforced. The pro of this system? It kept power within the family rather than giving it away to the men who married the family's worthless daughters and prevented the division of large estates. Con? This meant that the strongest alternative claim to power was found among the immediate relatives, and those relatives thus potentially had a strong motive to undermine or even plot against a parent or sibling in power. Yeah, the system only works if you, like, have a son. Yeah, like, it's extremely fragile in terms of heritability. And in terms of, like, just heavily incentivizing your nearest and dearest to stab you in the kidney. Yeah, basically, like, there's a reason that they hired people to taste their food. Mm-hmm. Everyone you love is, yeah. Yeah, like, at least the kitchen cook doesn't hate you as much as your mother does. Mmm, does this taste like arsenic to you? Mm. No, it tastes like regime change to me. This made Monsieur both a necessity and a threat. As his brother was crowned around the same time as he learned his ABCs, for a long time, almost two decades, Monsieur and was his immediate and only heir. After the death of their father, Louis and Philippe were raised in part by their godfather and Anne of Austria's closest advisor, Cardinal Mazarin, uh, as well as the usual fleet of governesses, servants, and tutors. You're a literal, yeah, human spare tire. <laughs> you are a human Basically. spare tire that no one ever actually wants to use. Yeah, like, you're, you're, you're the worst case scenario. It's very much the air and spare. Yeah, and there's also, like, you have a distinct motive to smother the regular tire in its sleep so that you can go on the car. Exactly, and everybody damn well knows it. They can't get rid of you because they do need the spare, but also, yeah, you might just murder someone. You may be a liability. In fact, you're quite likely to be. Uh, both Anne and Mazarin showed a clear preference for Louis, both in public and in private, for reasons both political and personal. In his teenage years, Louis was taught the theory and practice of politics and statecraft, while Monsieur was kept as far away from the practicalities of rule as possible, and may have even had his education deliberately undermined by Mazarin. 
Monsieur had a lax regime of study considered more suitable to a princess than a prince in a day and age when royal women primarily served the role of decorative wombs, at least right up until the moment they inevitably outlived their husbands and had to rule. Yeah. I also like that it's like, no, this isn't this isn't just political. This isn't just because, you know, legally your brother's going to be king. You're an ugly little snot and I love him more. <laughs> Almost explicit. From the bottom of my heart, I don't like you. I have always liked your brother better. I will always like your brother better. And it's only 90% the fact that he is king. <laughs> you only exist so that our family doesn't lose power if your brother dies on the toilet passing a kidney stone. Which he probably will, let's just be, let's just be realistic. <laughs> it's kind of a shame because we know for a fact that Monsieur was bright, witty, and eloquent from a young age, to the extent that when he began to upstage his more reserved brother, Anne and Mazarin started to leave him behind more and more often when they went on royal visits to various parts of the kingdom. Aww. In addition to being allowed to primarily fill his time with games and idle play, from when he was a small child, Monsieur was encouraged in his love of fashion, jewelry, and etiquette, and his preference for the social company of women. He was largely humored and even encouraged in these interests because they were non-threatening and far from any path to real power. He was now, the Paris Hilton of France. <laughs> he very much was. But I don't think Louis was necessarily the Nicole Ritchie. <laughs> I don't fully understand these references. I'm just making vague mouth noises in replication of human behavior I've observed. <laughs> now, this was a day and age in which an interest in clothes and jewelry wasn't inherently feminine. Men wore heels and long hair and showed off their shapely calves and official portraits. I mean, it's France. They still have, they to this day have a bit more leeway when it comes to men liking mm -hmm. fancy shoes. If you don't dress a certain level of well, you're simply, you're simply considered Belgian. <laughs> um, you get, <laughs> they send you, they send you over, over, over the border, like, like a naughty kraut, and you're Belgian now. <laughs> get out of here, you badly dressed waffle. Even by the standards of the day, Monsieur's personality and the degree of these interests were considered effeminate. Yikes. Uh, yeah, Hugh Stokes, of course, outright speculates this is one of the historians I mentioned earlier, that Monsieur's tendency towards femininity can be traced to the fact that his paternal grandmother was Italian, which, of course, is was a perfectly acceptable thing to say I, in 1913. I don't even have a response to that. That's... It's just... Wow! <laughs> of course you're gay. Your grandmother's Italian. <laughs> but... Wow! <laughs> but I don't... There's nothing particularly feminine about a stereotypical Italian man, and I assume most Italian men have Italian grandmothers. I don't even... I don't... Yeah, the, I don't. The, the, the general reputation of Italy has changed significantly since the 17th century. It used to be considered the effeminate country of the two. Oh, that's fun. France was the more masculine sort. <laughs> what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive, very briefly. <laughs> Monsieur was taught to defer to his brother in all things. He was pushed away from all but the most ceremonial of politics, undermined in terms of building competence and independence, and kept on a short leash in terms of his finances, so that he would be constantly tied and beholden to Louis. All of this despite the fact that Monsieur never demonstrated any notable no rebellious or traitorous inclinations, beyond an entirely understandable desire for independence. He largely did what his brother wanted. But as long as he remained popular with the court, the military, and the people, all of which he was for the most of his adult life, he was perceived as a threat. He didn't walk around cackling every time his brother stepped under a chandelier, like, meh. <laughs> <laughs> 
he did not. Although, when I say that Monsieur was never rebellious, I do mean that in the more serious, never consorted with an act of rebellion sense. Because despite the fact that he, we don't have a lot of information about his teenage years compared to his brother, we have enough to know that he had, a, he had very few close friends and some definite rage issues. He had some pretty spectacular outbursts, my favorite being when 16-year-old Monsieur committed assault against the dignity of his majesty, the king, by throwing a plate of soup into his brother's face. Um, <laughs> despite Nancy Barker's insinuation that Monsieur had a deep-seated unconscious hatred of Louis due to a pseudo-Edipal conflict over the love of their mother, there is no clear evidence that Monsieur was anything but loyal and genuinely fond of Louis and Queen Anne. Also, what, did this woman write this book drunk? I've no idea. She doesn't even have the excuse that Hugh Stokes did of, like, being from the literal 1910s. Like, she's relatively modern. I have no idea what she was smoking. A 16-year-old boy (laughs) throws a plate of soup in his brother's face, and her explanation is, they're competing over who gets to fuck their mom, and not, it's a 16-year-old boy, and it's his brother. Yeah, like, like you are, I don't want to say that, like, like, it's just as simple as that, but sometimes it's just as simple as that. You don't have any, need to make this more complicated than it, than it is. <laughs> I am 25 years old, and there are still times when I would gladly push my brother into the Atlantic Ocean. My brother, very, like, like, only, like, a few years ago, when we were both adults, nearly broke my nose by lifting, like, by slamming a ski lift safety bar into my face. Like... And I, I don't think he regrets it. <laughs> there was a lot of blood, but I think he, deep down, he doesn't, he'd do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't need sexy parents in this equation. No. Yeah, like, I don't think, I don't think our mother or our father inspired any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Plan to shape Monsieur into a feeble shadow of his older brother massively backfired, because in 1658, in the often intolerant, hypocritical world of 17th century Catholic France, 17-year-old Monsieur, Duke of Anjou, brother to the king, came out of the closet. Yikes! Yeah, a big difference between Monsieur and the historical figures like his father, Louis XIII, is that there is no vague general historical consensus that he was gay, built on hearsay and probability. We know for a fact that Monsieur was gay as a summer's day because he made it unambiguously clear that he was. First, in 1658, by showing up to a ball in full drag and dancing with the Count, dancing with the Count of Guiche, a handsome young man a few years his senior. He then confirmed this by spending the rest of his life surrounded by surrounding himself with pretty male favorites, sustaining a relationship with another man, the Chevalier of Lorraine, over the course of four decades, and having sex with women basically only when required to do so for the sake of the of king, country, and getting Louis to shut up about it already. <laughs> you get in here and you fuck this woman. <laughs> right now. Right where I can see it. But dad, I don't wanna fuck a woman. <laughs> I'm busy with my perfume and my jewelry. <laughs> I also and every young man in court. <laughs> I just like that he went in full drag and then was like, just in case, this was too subtle. <laughs> just in case, being in drag in the 17th century wearing what I can only assume is an 80 pound pile of steel and clothing that passes for <laughs> women's garb. Now that I've, you know, laced myself into a woman's costume, in case that's not clear, I'm going to fuck this man for 40 years. And also <laughs> several other men. Just so we're clear. 
I don't know if how many exclamation points you need, but here's how many I'm giving you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did not do subtle. And like the dressing and drag thing, not some not a one-off. He also appeared with his cousin at another ball dressed as a shepherdess. <laughs> That's commitment. It is a lot of commitment. And you like you need to understand, none of this shit is off the rack. <laughs> There is no big and tall lady store that he's going to. Can you imagine being that tailor and just being like, well, I can either say no to the brother of the king or I can get executed by the king. <laughs> I guess I'm gonna just gonna make, make, roll the dice and make myself just a huge wedding gown. Also, like, this just is a like, massive dress. This isn't like modern day where like the biggest obstacle to cross-dressing is figuring out how to hook a bra. Which you can kind of figure out. This is an era when it takes women 16 hours and nine people to get dressed. Yeah, you don't so much get dressed as get upholstered. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't have underwear, you have scaffolding. <laughs> it's so much easier to just be a man in this era. To be a woman on so purpose is just above and beyond. You have to be determined if you really want to be a chick. <laughs> That's <laughs> commitment. That is dedication to the art. <laughs> of course, Nancy Barker from 1989, thank oh, no. you very much, would probably find my lack of analysis of the, of the roots of Monsieur's homosexuality troubling in that I don't think he's gay really requires any further explanation. Nancy, however, is really invested in the Freudian model of psycho -devel psychosexual development, you know, where everything about your personality is either about childhood sexual stimulation or about wanting to kill your dad and fuck your mom. I hate her. Uh, I hate her so much. So much. I'm going to egg her house, and then I'm going to go just... dig up Sigmund Freud, and I'm going to egg him, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, like, take your egg to Sigmund Freud. I'm going to throw it on her doorstep. I'm going to light him, light him on fire. I'm going to ring the doorbell. So she, she's going to have to stomp on him to put him out. <laughs> like, I, I, I read her entire book, and I regretted every fucking moment of it. <laughs> Jessica, it was, it, it was unfortunate. <laughs> it sounds to me like your desire for revenge on this woman comes from a deep-seated desire to <laughs> fuck both of your parents. <laughs> Statistically, that's either that or Nancy is in fact my mom. <laughs> and my dad. <laughs> Whatever it is, you want to fuck them all. All of them. All of them. That is the only explanation. <laughs> Yuck. For any of my behavior. It's the only reason humans do anything. Mm-hmm. Mom fucking. Yikes. Makes the world go round. Oh no. That's no. Nope, 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 nope. Uh so Nancy starts off her discussion of Monsieur's sexuality with the following. Oh no. While it is true that one school of thought maintains that exclusive homosexuals are the products of a physiological anomaly present at birth, most experts view homosexuality as an acquired condition, usually arising from early and profound disturbances in the mother-child relationship. And... I... Wow. <laughs> I have just changed my opinion about whether or not I would like to be a heroin addict. <laughs> and the answer it's is like, yes. What experts, Nancy? Because, like... That is at least a decade after homosexuality room was removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychological What's-Its. I'm pretty sure you are well after that point in 1989, thank you very much. Right. This is not the psychological consensus of the era. 
Yeah. Holy. Now in modern times, we realize it's not what women do after their kids are born that makes them gay. You make those kids gay right in the womb. It's baked in. Died in the wool. You just, just a, just stress and birth order. Mm. That's, mm. That is all it is. Like, it's nothing you did in so, like, in so far as, like, you did not intentionally, like, tinker with the hormones available in the uterine environment. <laughs> yeah. In so far as that wasn't intentional, you didn't do anything. No, it's not because you're, like, your son saw you getting dressed one day when he was three and all of a sudden he longs for penis. It's, you know, just your body attacked his androgens while he was in the womb and that's probably an incomplete explanation based on what we know now. Yeah. Hooray! Yeah, like, even, even that is incomplete and insufficient to be explaining what exactly happened to little Temmie. Oh. Uh, but, you know, maybe you'll find it in, in your heart one day to accept. Who knows? Or maybe you won't. Or we could Doesn't just keep matter. blaming women. Or we can just keep blaming women. That's my favorite lesson of history. I like that. You, even, can, do, you can get away with that for a while. Even <laughs> when a man has sex with another man, it's still somehow a woman's fault. It's like it's like six it's like six degrees of Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Just to like summarize here. Uh Nancy's argument is that Monsieur's homosexual homosexual behavior began at eighteen as a response to repeated humiliations and the guilt of both loving his brother and his secret desire to destroy and supplant him, as represented by the soup incident, resulting in a retreat to feminine passivity. And homosexual narcissism, as well as a, a desire, masochistic desire for self-punishment, causing him to seek public humiliation and lovers symbolically representing his brother who would control and subjugate him. Essentially, Nancy's thesis is Monsieur was gay because he wanted to kill and or hate fuck his beloved brother, and the realization of these conflicting emotions traumatized him into wearing dresses. It's a sexualized desire to commit fratricide. Has she considered the possibility that the guys at French court were just really hot? <laughs> it's one of the two. It's one of the two. It's it's amazing how, like, the, the depth that historical people would go to explain homosexuality using incest as if that's less weird. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, homosexuality. We got no explanation for that. But wanting to hate fuck your own brother on his throne. That we can get behind. Perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So how exactly does a fellow get away with being overtly and flamboyantly gay in 17th century France? Uh, easy. Be the king's brother. I was gonna say, uh, I assume being, <laughs> like, literally above the law. Literally exactly. the brother of the law. Yeah, like, this is a day and age before, like, the state is considered a being of the people. Essentially, these are just, like, owned territories of the king. And the king is the law. French society operated based on a privileged system known as the Three Estates, where the rules were different based on class affiliation. Whether or not you were part of the nobility, the clergy, or the peasantry changed your relationship to the rules of society, both by law and by custom. And customarily, several laws that hypothetically prescribed imprisonment or capital punishment for sodomy were rarely, if ever, applied to nobility and clergy, never mind royalty. Basically, the defense is, nah, 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 my brother's the king, nah. Laws essentially existed and became enforced at the pleasure of the king. This is before the enshrinement of rule of law. There were no legal limitations on the power of the king, only social, political, and logistical ones. 
the primary check on overt homosexuality among the nobility was social censure. And there was a high tolerance within the French court for more covert homosexuality and a massive amount of deference to royalty, including the king to the king's odd brother. Monsieur was definitely far more open and explicit about his homosexual and gender conformity than most, in that I haven't heard of another man of the era who showed up to a ball dressed as a shepherdess, but male-male liaisons were an open secret at the French court. Plus, I mean, like, every moment that Monsieur is having sex with another man, he's not openly testing garrot wire. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> count your blessings. Yeah, like, there was, like, this this long-standing rumor that Mazarin had tried to coerce, like, Mazarin and Anne had all secretly, had both secretly plotted to make Monsieur homosexual, which is, like, one, no, you can't do that. <laughs> That's not even possible. <laughs> but also, two, no, they didn't. This is still a more embarrassing, like, more embarrassment than they genuinely prefer, even if it is a very useful way of keeping him away from the seat of power. These people can't accept that gay just happens. This is something no, they're really they, struggling with. They, they want some explanation other than just, like, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> As a young man, Monsieur inherited the title of Duke of Orléans after the death of his disgraced uncle Gaston, who he made the unfortunate error of being fond of. Oh, no. <laughs> you are not supposed to like your disgraced, exiled uncle when everyone is worried about you being a ticking time bomb. Uh, he was also entitled as a Prince of the Blood to an appanage, which is a sort of consolation prize traditionally given to younger royal siblings who would otherwise inherit nothing. An appanage is usually an office or an estate of some kind with an income attached so that the person in question could independently maintain their cost of living and that of their household in some way other than asking relatives for money or turning tricks on the corner of the nearest e busy intersection. I'm not sure that that was a profession that royals had, but all right. <laughs> I also like that this is like the consolation prize for being shit out by a queen in the wrong order. <laughs> it's the participation yeah. trophy of royal birth. <laughs> you participated. Here's a go here here's an estate with several serfs. Huzzah. Ooh, better next next time. Here's a province to run. <laughs> now you don't have to sell your body in the streets of Paris. No, don't say we never did nothing for you. <laughs> uh, Monsieur's appanage was much smaller than his uncle Gaston's had been by design, and, as was traditional, Monsieur would only receive his inheritance, which would ha have granted him some degree of financial independence from the crown, after marriage. Monsieur had his very own small villa, the Chateau de Saint-Cloud, which cost 240,000 livres at the time of its purchase, but this could only grant so much autonomy. Uh, and that is an amount of money, incidentally, I literally cannot translate into modern terms. We don't even know how much money it took to build Versailles, because not only was there more than one type of livre, and it wasn't always specified what kind they meant in official documents, but their value fluctuated kind quite a bit. And for most of the early building period, the king paid for it largely out of pocket, private wealth and income, which included the co colony of New France, which at the point was at the point a personal possession of the French king. It honestly would be easier to track currency if everyone just paid for shit in pine cones. I honestly, at least the pine cone has remained consistent over time. <laughs> They've always been worthless. Yeah, there's actually a point where you can no longer translate ancient currency into modern terms. Uh, mm -hmm. We can only really give an accurate and faithful translation of currency for a couple decades because the purchasing power of different things has changed. 
Mm-hmm. The, for instance, the value of land and rent has changed at a different pace than like the value of a goat. So we really don't mm-hmm. know what you could purchase with a set amount of money once you go back far enough. People just didn't keep their yeah. seats for us to pour yeah, over. At a, at a certain point, we just don't know. And they're also Which buying things, reasons. yeah, that don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Knowing yeah, how like, much, like, uh, how many horse sh- horseshoes you can buy, or uh, yeah, like knowing how much like the average wage of a bee catcher is is no longer particularly useful. No, how much it's going to cost you to get your chimney swept is not something we can translate. Monsieur had little to no choice whether or whom to marry. Louis had married Mary- Maria Teresa of Spain, which, if you've been paying attention, you'll remember as both a member of the notoriously inbred Spanish Habsburg and the daughter of Louis's father's sister and his mother's brother, making them double cousins. Mm, uh, people, babies in this family did not have heads that were the correct shape. No. Through their marriage, they only had one child who survived past the age of five. A son, also named Louis, who predeceased his father and never became king, so he doesn't get any numbers numbers after his name. Because these are pugs of human beings. Yeah, after the birth of Louis's son, Monsieur remained second in line to the French throne after the Dauphin because Louis had no other surviving legitimate children. He had a fuck ton of bastards, but no surviving legitimate children. It wasn't until Louis, the Dauphin, had sons of his own that the line of succession was considered relatively secure. Yeah, because you're married to your own second cousin, who's really, in reality, more of your, like, two and three quarters cousins, because you're so fucking inbred. You're mm-hmm. basically overbred poodles with hip dysplasia. Any male offspring Monsieur had would help secure the succession of the French throne for the House of Bourbon. Likewise, any children he had would be useful pawns for diplomatic marriages. Monsieur's first marriage was in 1661 to Henrietta of England, affectionately known as Minette, his first cousin who had lived in France since the age of two due to a rather messy business known as the English Civil Civil War, where her father Charles I completely lost his head. After the whole kerfuffle died down and her brother Charles II took the throne, the dynastic marriage of Henrietta de Monsieur was arranged to keep England from falling into the orbit of France's major rival, Spain. I just like that Louis was just like, yo, all of my children come out with three eyes and half a lung. Give me some of yours. Like, like he was very much in, like, this frustrating situation where, like, he's like, All my it, kids all die. My, <laughs> oh, damn it. All my, all my unofficial kids are hardy as horses, but all my official kids die. Guess it's time to stud out my gay brother. <laughs> <laughs> Breeding you like a show pony. Monsieur, oddly enough, seems to have been equally anxious for the match and to marry as soon as possible. But there's plenty of reason to doubt that it was because he was overcome with ardor for his future bride. Strangely enough, the irresistible draw of the noble institution of marriage became, uh, seems to have gripped him roughly around the death of his uncle when his money and land became available to inherit. (laughs) Lady, you are a wallet that I occasionally have to fuck. (laughs) Perfunctionary as it may be. (laughs) (laughs) This will be joyless and brief. (laughs) (laughs) That's what all of my boyfriends have said to me. (laughs) So far. Unsurprisingly, conflict started pretty early in their marriage. Nancy calls Minette a coquette and a sorceress, but Nancy can be a little dramatic. Nonetheless, Minette, both intelligent and charming, was also apparently a bit of a flirt, and it made Monsieur furious. Bit of a pot kettle situation there, my friend. Yeah, like... 
why does a notorious homosexual with his own extramarital love affairs get angry and jealous because his wife, the wife he is neither in love with nor attracted to, is flirting with other men? Because even yeah. though he's gay, he is still sexist. As everyone is, is in this period. You're never too gay to hate women. And that's a lesson we can all learn. <laughs> uh, well, it might not have been so much that she was flirting... As with whom? Namely, Louis. Louis and Manette, shortly after Manette's marriage, began an open and obvious flirtation that basically everyone at court knew about. Then, after she lost the king's fickle attention, she had an affair with the Count of Guiche, one of Monsieur's entourage who, if he wasn't one of Monsieur's lovers, was definitely a very close friend. These being just two of Manette's many well-known and less-than-discreet admirers. There was an element of public humiliation and personal betrayal to Monsieur's jealousy, but it may have had a great deal to do with his relationships with the men in question as well. I was gonna say, like, being mad that she's flirting with your brother is like spending extra time on the PlayStation because you don't want your brother to have it. It's True. just, you don't even want her, man. He wants to play with her, you're not using her. Yeah, you're playing Metal Gear Solid out of spite, and you don't even find Raiden's character arc interesting. You really want to be using the Xbox. Just just go. Admit it to yourself. And yes, <laughs> boys and girls, Xbox is now only for gay people. Straights, get back on the PlayStation. This has been a confusing episode. <laughs> this is my understanding of gender and sexuality. The two genders. The asexuals get we. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fitting. I can understand that. Yeah. Bisexuals, you get in the switch. <laughs> <laughs> well, this went too far. <laughs> uh, Minette had three children, a boy who died in infancy, infancy, and two girls. There was plenty of coarse gossip that their first daughter, Mary Louise, was actually the daughter of the king or the Count of Guiche, but either Monsieur didn't believe the rumors or he didn't particularly care because he loved his daughters and was notably close to Mary Louise. They may have been conceived primarily out of grumbling duty and spite, but he unreservedly cared about them to a degree that it was unusual for fathers of the time. <laughs> You're not a disinterested drunk who occasionally beats her? What is this? No. Love? Oh, I think they had a lot to bond over in terms of fashion and men. <laughs> <laughs> it's what every girl wants Appar from her father. I would be yeah, appar stoked. Apparently he, was, apparently he was always giving them fashion advice. <laughs> you know what? I'd take it. My father goes outside in public where people can see him wearing sweatpants with elastic around the ankles that he purchased before he met my mother. <laughs> All of my dad's t-shirts have holes Those in them. Those pants are older than you. They are. All my father's clothes are from the 70s, and all of them are so see-through and so well-worn, you can clearly see his nipples. <laughs> so, you know what? I'd take your fashion father, dad any day. Your father is just this far away from a public decency charge. Every time my dad goes out in public, it looks like he's the sole survivor of an airplane crash and he had to cobble <laughs> together an outfit from other people's luggage. And it was for some reason the 70s. Yeah, it's horrendous. <laughs> uh, another equally important point of conflict came in the form of a different Philippe, to whom we shall refer to by his title, the Chevalier of Lorraine, for the sake of bloody simplicity. And brevity, that really rolls off the tongue. 
Laurent was of high rank, considered a foreign prince, but he was also the second son of a man who died in the throes of insolvency. Laurent was thus relatively poor despite his social status. He was handsome, intelligent, and a grade-A shit-disturber. Mmm. And Monsieur likes a bad boy. Mmm, he very much does. I'm not saying that this was to get back at his mom and Louis, but it worked. <laughs> uh, Lorraine was acquainted with Monsieur by, by 1658, three years before his marriage, and later became an unofficial member of his household. This was something of an unusual arrangement, though there are, were parallels to it. The French court at the time had had for a long time the semi-official position of maîtresse en titre, the chief mistress of the king who had particular privileges and powers, and was due a certain level of deference. While the maîtresse en titre never officially had status higher than the queen, she often had equal or more influence and outranked the wives of lesser nobility. While Louis XIV had kept his mistresses relatively covert while the queen mother was alive, his affairs became far more overt later to the point where he even officially recognized and legitimized his children by his various mistresses. Lorraine held a similar position to Maîtres en titre in Philippe's household, where he had a great deal of power with Henrietta as his primary rival in terms of influence. At some point, he acquired the name of the Arch Mignon, which doesn't translate super well into English, but roughly means Arch Minion, which is a reference to the court of Henry III, where the etymology of Minion actually comes from. Uh, minion comes from the French word mignon, which means cute, or if you use it as a noun, darling. So he wasn't actually a small yellow creature in overalls. In fact, no. The original mignon, the original minions, were the pretty male, young male favorites of Henry III, another, another notably gay French king. So is filet mignon a cute steak? It is, in fact, an adorable little steak. It's a cute cut, cut of meat. I learned yeah, it, something it, that it I can never unlearn. in this particular in this particular instant. Well, that's fun. I don't know that that's a title that a man really wants to carry when his claim yeah. to fame is fucking the king's brother, but... Yeah, like, you it, know. this was absolutely intended as something of a, something of a slander against him. Uh, as an aside, when Louis was older, due to the influence of his secret second wife, who was far below him in class, making this a left-handed marriage, Ooh. Madame de Maintenon, he became more circumspectly religious. He became likewise more critical of Monsieur's homosexuality, and apparently in response to Louis, Louis' moral censure, Monsieur responded with a rather wonderful line poking fun at his brother's hypocrisy. Uh, you fucked more girls than you have beads on your rosary. <laughs> Ooh! Which oh, that's so damn. good. That's so it's good. It's so good. It's still good all these hundreds of years later. <laughs> oh, that quote that should be the more famous. Sickest burn. That is you a sick burn. You could ever do to a Catholic. <laughs> oh, I like it. I'm gonna use it. Find me a slutty Catholic. It's too good of a line to waste. Bring me a slutty Catholic. Most of the conflict within the household was not directly between Minette and Philippe, but rather between Minette and Lorraine and their respective supporters. 
The details are far too much dramatic nonsense for me to delve into, but if you're getting the image of gangs of ladies in ridiculous dresses and effeminate men with powdered wigs snapping at each other like they're the sharks and the jets, you're not that far off. That's literally all I want. <laughs> Philippe, of course, usually took Lorraine's side of things. The final culmination of their conflict came when Minette used her position as primary negotiator of the secret treaty of Dover between England and France to arrange for Louis to have Lorraine arrested and imprisoned, which he did with no fuss, Minette and King Charles II being far more useful and important to him than either Lorraine or his brother's feelings. Uh, this was the first of many times that Lorraine was exiled for su from some reason or other, though I do suspect my favorite time is the one he when he corrupted one of the king's bastard sons. But that's a story for another time. Yikes. <laughs> that can mean a lot it, of things. <laughs> it, it can mean a lot of things. Um, but uh, notably, like, Philippe and Lorraine have been together for more than a decade at this point. <laughs> it's a dick move. It's unsportsmanlike. You it's can try to that. murder your sibling in their sleep, but you don't take away their spouse of ten years. Philippe responded by retreating from court to a remote chateau and refusing to cede to any request to return for 25 days. Ah, so sulking was his official sulking. response. Sulking. But it was but it was highly effective sulking because you know like all the dignity in a good sulk like the 14-year-old almost emo you once were is dedication. I was the master of the sulk. You got to hang on. At a certain point it is more embarrassing for them than it is for you. The drama of a prince of France protesting the arrest and imprisonment of a high-ranking member of the nobility for the better part of a month garnered a lot of attention both domestic and international, which was both extremely embarrassing in of itself and rather awkward as the negotiations, the negotiations between England and France that resulted in Lorraine's arrest were secret. <laughs> Louis eventually agreed to releasing Lorraine barred him from returning to France. To save face, Philippe officially returned to court without any condition, and Lorraine was just mysteriously released around the same time. <laughs> so basically, Philippe, get back in here, the neighbors will talk. <laughs> basically. Minette's involvement in Lorraine's, Lorraine's arrest basically ruined Philippe and Minette's already rocky marriage. Ooh. This history of conflict between Philippe's wife and his lover is a major part of why, when Minette died, Lorraine was broadly suspected of having poisoned her through an intermediary of some kind, despite the fact that he was still in exile in Italy at the time, oh. and despite Minette's long history of frail health and an autopsy that stated that she had died of natural causes, namely gastroenteritis. This public suspicion is unsurprising, as homosexuality was strongly associated with criminality and especially poison as a weapon in the culture of the time. I was gonna say, like, oh, when you said their marriage broke down, I'm like, oh man, maybe they just don't talk to each other. I can see how she's kind of pissed. You spent 25 days on some kind of hunger strike over your gay lover to the public humiliation of your wife. But yeah, uh, murder is a bit extreme. Yeah, well, it broke down between them and then she died. Yeah. Uh... Monsieur, despite having had similar conflict with Henrietta and far more access having been, you know, in the same country, was largely above suspicion, due to him being the brother of the king and due to his reaction to the sudden illness of his wife and her suspicion that she had been poisoned. Monsieur was initially disturbed and called to, for doctors to bring poison antidotes, and as her health deteriorated, he became distraught, distraught refusing to leave her bedside. 
Oh, well, now uh, you're sorry. <laughs> now he's very sorry. He actually has this long tendency of getting very, very upset when a sibling or relative seems to be sick. And he reacted similarly during his, uh, his mother's illness. So he only likes you when you're dying. <laughs> Funnily enough, when Monsieur himself was sick as a child... Uh, she straight up abandoned him just because, like, his mother just straight up abandoned him because, like, Louis Louis was lonely, so, like... Eh. Because, once again, <laughs> Philippe, you're an ugly mistake and you only exist in case your brother dies choking to death on a piece of carrot. The question of whether or not Henrietta was poisoned is an interesting one. On the one hand, she died at 26, young even for the time. Yeah. The autopsy said natural causes... But it was performed by the physicians of Louis XIV, who had a strong political reason to suppress the information if the sister of a valuable ally had indeed been poisoned by a member of his own court. Like, 26-year-olds don't really drop dead of gastroenteritis all that often. Not usually. Generally speaking, if you made it into your 20s back in the day, you were usually fine from disease like, unless there was a plague whipping around. Tuberculosis notwithstanding, you normally made it. Yeah, like, people were generally a little sturdier in their 20s than they were in their childhood. So you could die um, of undiagnosed stomach cancer in your 50s. Mm, exactly. On the other hand, the illness in question re wasn't really all that sudden. Henrietta is known to have been extremely thin all of her adult life, suffering frequent miscarriages and stillbirths, and is believed by many historians to have perhaps shown symptoms of anorexia. For some oh, period of time before her death, she had subsisted primarily on milk rather than solid food. Wait, wait, wait. Further- The, the psychobabble book- Goes on yeah. and on about the Oedipus complex, and then completely ignores the fact that this might be one of the first documented cases of anorexia in human history. Exactly. You understand my frustration. I Jenna. am <laughs> going to egg this woman's house. We're going to the grocery store. We're getting on a plane. And we're, we're dropping off. My carry-on no, baggage is eggs. Genuinely peeved. How do you gloss over that? That's widely considered to be an exclusively 21st century white girl disease. The the very idea that we might in fact have an early case of anorexia from the 1600s is amazing. And then she's like, and nah, yes, everybody wants to fuck their mom. That's what that's what the people that's want. That's the real That's the real away. story here. Yeah. Oh. yeah so further, she'd apparently complained of similar, if less intense, pain in her side for the past three years. It is far more likely that she died of a perforated ulcer than that she was poisoned. Hmm. Furthermore, if Louis had really believed that the Chevalier had poisoned his sister-in-law, Lorraine would have never been permitted to return to court, never mind when he did two years later. <laughs> interesting. But then, let's just gloss over that. That's not interesting. That's a woman. She's a woman. A male woman. And, like, easy, re easily replaceable. Seeing as Monsieur's second marriage was a year later and had similar tensions to those of his first, in that Lorraine remained a rival to his second wife. Yeah, he's still gay. This didn't go away. He did No matter how many women you throw at him, very much homosexual. S still gay in the place-up. Just being relentlessly homosexual as usual, and no one around him can understand why he won't just grow out of it. God damn it. But these issues were far less pronounced due to the nature of said second wife. Elizabeth Charlotte, Princess Palatine, 
known as Lieslot, according to historical consensus, was a plain-looking, robust German tomboy. Mm, built to last. Mm, sturdy. sturdy. <laughs> she was raised by her aunt Sophie due to an awkward situation where her father divorced her mother to marry another woman, and her mother just sort of refused to leave. I can see uh, how that would be awkward. <laughs> Lieslot liked beer, sausages, hunting, and ribald humor. And... If she was born a couple centuries later, she could have co-hosted this podcast. Uh, she's she's uh, basically just the country of Germany distilled yeah, into just one woman. Distilled into one woman and then married to the representation of 17th century France. Enjoy this German stereotype. She's getting married to this French stereotype. <laughs> I, one can almost argue that these two are the originators of those stereotypes. The cutifiers of these kinds of nationalist stereotypes. At least they know that they both enjoy sausage. <laughs> and they do a lot. Uh, she is actually one of the most important sources historians have on court life at Versailles due to the over 60,000 letters she wrote over her lifespan to her friends and relatives back home. Ah, so she had a lot of spare time. Mmm, boy did she ever... She wasn't good at being decorative, and she wasn't into it either. <laughs> um, <laughs> she had thoughts. She also, unfortunately for the sake of the historical record, burnt her husband's correspondence with his boyfriends to protect his privacy. Ah, less good. Unfortunate. Lieslot was intelligent, witty, and deeply skeptical about the, of the, about the culture of the French court, which she saw as a bunch of frivolous, debauched ninnies, which in her defense they absolutely were. I was gonna say, she's got a point. Lady's got a point. She's, she has got, she's coming from a certain perspective, and I'm picking up what she's laying down. I get it. I, <laughs> I can get behind this. I see, I see yeah. where she's getting this. While she disliked her husband's habit of spending money on various favorites, she was largely tolerant of Monsieur's homosexuality, even if she never really came to like Lorraine. Apparently, both Lieslot and Philippe were relieved after the birth of their third child when they mutually decided never to touch each other ever again. <laughs> they were like, that's enough of that. That was more than enough of that. That was a lot of compulsory heterosexual for the both of us. <laughs> we laid back. We thought of France. This is over. And like in the day when l'état c'est moi, you know, like your brother is the state. It's an awkward. It's an awkward family dynamic. Ooh. <laughs> mm. No one wants to deal with that. Often, despite Louis' interference, Monsieur managed several accomplishments during his life. He may have had no official place in government, but he was a master of the rules of etiquette that utterly controlled court life in France and were a major part of how the royal family maintained control over the nobility. He maintained a popular shadow court and held a great deal of influence. He was an important patron of the arts, including his early patronage of the great French playwright Molière and his remodeling of the Palais Royal in Paris and his, and the, his chateau in Saint-Cloud, which was sadly destroyed as a casualty of war in the 19th century. He was also a competent military leader. Princes of France were given high military positions as a matter of formality. In Monsieur's case, Lieutenant General, making him second in command after his brother, though in truth he had far less power than the title would normally indicate. Ooh. He nonetheless took the position very seriously as one of the few practical activities he was allowed. He was well known for having cl a close relationship with his men, although not that kind of relationship, you perverts. <laughs> Call me out. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
spending time and socializing with the enlisted soldiers instead of keeping his distance like most of the other officers. He was also known for charging into the thick of the fighting alongside those same men, exposing himself to the same dangers. Hmm. He, he once had a horse shot out from under him, only to get up and start fighting enemy soldiers on foot with his sword, all of which made him beloved by in the army, but appears to have genuinely confused many of his contemporaries who knew him as vain, silly, and effeminate. I don't even need a goddamn horse. I'll show you. <laughs> yeah, I just keep imagining being a Dutch soldier, watching a tiny, fancy man... Carefully quaffed and perfumed, bedecked in res- ribbons, with a massive fancy wig, just leaping up after getting his horse shot and start stabbing people. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need no goddamn horse. Horses are for the English and the Belgians. <laughs> uh, homosexuality wasn't unusual in the upper ranks of the army. Actually, it was disproportionately common, due to the fact that officers with male lovers could bring their lovers with them to war, and thus were less reluctant to leave their peacetime comforts. Oh, convenient. Yeah. Loophole. Gays in the military used to be very different. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Monsieur never had to hide his preferences, and probably wouldn't have anyway. Uh, although his insistence on personally caring for the Chevalier de Lorraine when he was injured was nonetheless somewhat scandalous. I was gonna say, he doesn't really seem to give a shit at this point. (laughs) Uh, he hasn't given a shit since he was 18, and he doesn't plan to start now. He got shot (laughs) off a horse. I think he gets to do whatever he wants. (laughs) Honestly. He got shot off a horse and stabbed a man. I, 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 like... Let the man love He can do what he wants. Let the man live. Any man would be well, lucky to have him. <laughs> and any woman, deeply unlucky. Oh yeah, not, not, a, not a good choice there. The thing that people found really odd was that even when Monsieur rode into battle, his personal aesthetic and manner of dress changed relatively little from when he hosted fancy balls. He's just Apparently, the fanciest man on the field. The fanciest. Apparently one of his primary concerns wasn't dying upon the field of combat, but that the sun and the smoke would ruin his complexion. (laughs) True to form. True to form. Just, you stereotype. (laughs) He's got his priorities. He has his priorities, and those priorities are Are, 100% terrible. They're they're terrible priorities. (laughs) They're awful. (laughs) (laughs) He's worried because his lover's foot is hurt, and he wants to be as fancy as possible. He's lucky he didn't while... die. Yeah, those are those are not good. <laughs> uh, he doesn't appear to have been half bad at tactics either, never having made a notable misstep in his command over his troops, and in 1667, leading a rout against William of Orange that earned him a widespread public acclaim, and after which his brother never allowed him any other form of milita- meaningful military service ever again. Why, because he was good at it? Yes. <laughs> Stop upstaging me. Mom told you Get not out to. Of my lie. You're just in case of emergency. It's important to remember how much of history was run by teenagers and young adults. Oh my gosh. It makes so much more sense when you understand all these people are hormonal idiots. None of these people are like in their 40s. These are not people who like went to college and found themselves. These are just like people who are, all right, you're four now. It's time to rule France. Yeah, like, these are people who are taught from day one that they are God's representatives on Earth, and they have power over every living being around them, including their own family members. It's, like, yeah, the spoiled, shitty kid from class, but no one yeah, is like, ever going to reign the day. a healthy mentality. No. 
it's it's difficult when your five-year-old has the power to execute people. Mm, doesn't breed humility. No. Monsieur died in 1701 at 60 of a stroke following an argument with his brother about the king's treatment of his son, Monsieur's son. Hmm. To the very end, Louis was driving this man up the wall. Uh, <laughs> he left an interesting legacy. He founded a dynastic house that became incredibly powerful to the point that most Catholic monarchies can trace their descent directly to him. Blamed for his own idleness and ignored or treated with disdain by many historians, both his place of power as hereditary royal and his denial of that power as a younger brother to a paranoid king were essentially arbitrary. But he had the intelligence and drive to make far more of himself than he ever got the chance to do. Literally the middle child of history. Eh. I think Loren died in an orgy of some kind. Who knows? No. Oh, that's... <laughs> I mean, uh, if you're gonna go out, that's... that's Go out with a bang. <laughs> that's a way to do it, I guess. <laughs> Not saying yeah, it's a good were, way, but... <laughs> yeah, they were together all of... When they met to all of Monsieur's life, despite many separations. Aww. So mm. this is this is one of our few podcasts that's, like, not a horrifying murder. It's it's a cute love story. Sort of. I guess. I mean, a woman did get poisoned. This is the closest Probably. we're ever gonna come. Maybe this not. is the nicest story <laughs> we're ever gonna have. We're doing a this literal... Is, this is as happy as it gets. Next week's episode is a literal incest murder, so enjoy this. Enjoy this warm glow while it lasts. Yeah, enjoy the funny gay man who came out before the gay rights movement was a twinkle in anyone's eye. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Abusing the divine right of kings for social progress. I I have a lot of- I don't know how to feel. Hashtag- hashtag progress? (laughs) No, no it's not. Hashtag equality? No. No. Hashtag- hashtag deeply equal society. Yeah. Probably that one. Hashtag ancient regime. Hashtag happy Bieber. Happy birthday, Justin Bieber. You don't understand hashtags, do you? No. So it's like I a wanted verbal the tick. To put hashtag happy birthday, Justin Bieber. He'll see it. Yikes. And that's what's important to me. This is why we don't let you on the internet without adult supervision. To this day. <laughs> I wouldn't let you sign up for Webkins without an adult supervision. Fair. That is very fair. You'll harass the children. <laughs> Just with odd history facts. Oh, God. But we hope that you've enjoyed this discussion of the Fresh Prince of 17th century France. (laughs) Philippe Dolian. What she said. I've been Jessica. And I have been an extremely sunburned Janelle. And we are fat, Fat, French, French, and fabulous. fabulous. Wow. 50% tomatoey. (laughs) Oh. Go out in the sunlight. Let's be equal.